the parade the other day, probably starting to order Christmas presents and all that jazz and as much fun as the season can be, it can also bring a lot of stress or even sadness with maybe missing loved ones or that have passed away or estranged or whatever it is. And so um, it's a good time to remember God's goodness, even in these harder seasons and um, remember the joy that comes with worshiping the Lord together. So if you want to stand with me this morning, we'll begin with the call to worship taken from Psalm 33. The psalmist here calls the people to shout for joy, to give thanks to the Lord, to sing to him a new song, talks about his righteousness, his justice, and that this commanding power of the, of the Lord, that he spoke and it came to be, he commanded and it stood firm. And it's just amazing to think about the power of the word of the Lord. So. Let's read the word of the Lord this morning as we come together to worship. I'll read the bold section if you'll follow along after me. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise be fixed, the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright. And all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of steadfast love. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hopes. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded. And it stood firm. Amen. If you want to remain standing and turn to him with 90, sing an Advent song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. I love some of the words in here, not only talking about God saving Israel, the people of Israel in the Old Testament from captivity, but us, the people of God, from our captivity to sin death and Satan, and we get to sing about God's redeeming power, sending his only son, Emmanuel, God with us. Let's sing this morning.
I am going to cheat and just read off of <laughs> Surely all of you at one time or another, whether it's someone at school, someone at work, maybe even in your own family, who've known someone who is that guy. The guy that knows everything. And he comes off as knowing it all. And you can go up to this person and show him the instructions of something and see, you know, I'm trying to, you're, you're not doing it right. And they say, well, we've always done it this way. But, but you're showing them the instructions and you're going, that's, that's not the right way to do it. We've always done it that way. It's hard to talk to those kind of people. I'm thinking of one in particular at work that I say, you know, it's, it's just like you're a legend in your own mind. <laughs> and he's someone you could actually talk to like that. But one thing that I find interesting is it's really, really easy to see others who act like that, but we don't see ourselves when we act like that. We kind of miss that whole point here, that it's so much easier when someone else is doing it, and you can stand there almost in self-righteousness and go, look at him, look at how he's acting. Well, in John, 2 Corinthians, we have the Pharisees who, if you know anything about the Pharisees at all, they were a very learned people. They were... Not only did they study the scriptures, the Old Testament, they memorized the Old Testament. We're talking entire books of the Old Testament. They memorized. They knew it in their heart. And you have Jesus who shows up and is fulfilling all these scriptures that they've read about. And they're not, they're not seeing it. It's, it's like the instruction book himself is standing right before them. And they don't get that he's the one that they've been reading about and studying about and memorizing about all this time. So in John 9, 39 through 41, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see. And those who may see, those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Now listen to Jesus' answer. Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. They're full of themselves. Then in 2 Corinthians 3 it says, But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that some veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. Let's all join in this prayer of confession. Almighty Father, 
We come before you this morning confessing our blindness and pride. All of Scripture speaks of the glory of God, the saving work of Christ, and the redemption He has accomplished for His people. And yet, in our sin, we harden our hearts, desire our own glory, and seek the praises of men. Forgive us, Lord, we pray, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, unveil our eyes to the glory of Christ. song. It's called Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence. It's found in your hymnal 107. Uh, I'm excited about it. It's a good song. I learned it for the first time this week and it talks about Christ. So it's great.
the assurance that we have. John 10, again in 2 Corinthians. Those who are his, hears his voice. Those who are his know who he is, and he knows you. The word says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. In 2 Corinthians, says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you that, first of all, that we can hear your voice, that you want to speak to us through your word. We thank you, Lord, that you take us regardless of where we're at, whether from the beginning, just coming to know you, to where we served you for years. From, from glory to glory, you bring us and it's by your spirit. And we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for the assurance that we know it's not of ourselves. Father, be with us again this day as we set aside a day to worship you together as an assembly. As ecclesia, Lord, we come together. Lifting up your name, praising your name, glorifying your name. Meet us here in this midst, Lord, as we honor you this day. Be with Kindle as he brings your word, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. In our Confession of Faith, the Baptist Catechism, question number 92, what does God require of us that we may escape his wrath and curse? Due to us for sin. Read along with me the answer. To escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, God requires of us faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life, with the diligent use of all the outward and ordinary means, whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. Amen. You guys can be seated this morning. It's good to be with you all. This is a very wobbly music stand. <laughs> Sorry if I'm swaying up here. If you want to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 5. We'll be finishing up John chapter 5 this morning. It's 
been a long chapter. I don't know if you've all felt that way, but 47 verses. Uh, John chapter 6 is even longer. <laughs> but um, I have to say personally that John chapter 5 was a, ver a chapter that I always sort of, you know, I don't know if you guys ever think about like when you're reading through the Bible and you can kind of place the structure in your head. I kind of had John 1 through 4 structurally in my head and John 6, 7, and 8. And, but 5 was always one that I didn't think about a lot. There's not some, you know, famous saying of Jesus where he says, I'm the bread of life, or I'm this, or I'm that. There's a lot of deep theology in here, and we've gone through a lot of deep things in here, but I don't know, it's become one of my more favorite chapters in the Gospel of John, so hopefully that's been the case for you all. We've seen through John chapter 5, Jesus perform a miracle and get attacked for performing that miracle because the day on which he performed it. And he defends himself in a way that we've talked about multiple times. He says, my father is working till now, and I myself am working. And we've looked at, over the last almost month, all of Jesus' words from verse 19 through now, the end of the chapter. He's talked about his equality with God, that he is not only a co-laborer in creation, but in God's work of providence, upholding the universe, working even now that he is one with the Father, eternal, divine in his nature, that he's begotten of the Father, and that he's, in the last week we talked about, these witnesses to Jesus. So he's not just claiming these things about himself. He says, there's proof, there's witnesses. I've done these works. John the Baptist bore witness to me. The Father is born witness to me. You should believe that I am the Son of God, the one that's come to save his people from their sins. And yet, we see people don't believe him. People reject him, people persecute him, and these religious leaders in John chapter five seek to kill him. <laughs> that his words do not find a place in him, as he said last week, you do not have my word abiding in you. And we'll see today why that is. Jesus is gonna sort of turn the page, he's going to Instead of being the one that's accused, he is now going to accuse these religious leaders and show them the error of their ways. So if you want to follow along with me, we'll um, read. I'm going to start at verse 39 this morning. We'll read to the end of the chapter, and then we'll look at God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe? when you receive the glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? 
Let's pray this morning. Lord, we come before you this morning. We come weak and needy, humble, desiring bread from heaven. Not physical bread, not manna that's physical, but we come wanting to feed on Christ this morning. On the manna from heaven, the bread from heaven that brings spiritual nourishment to our souls. There's no other nourishment that will satisfy us this morning. There's no other food that will, that will satisfy us this morning. We need the bread of Christ in your word this morning to feed our weary souls, to satisfy our sick bodies. We need your help this morning. And we pray that as we look to the scriptures this morning, we will be convicted where we need to be convicted, where we've sought the glory of man rather than the glory of God. And this morning we would see Christ in all the scriptures, not just as these specific prophecies that speak about him, but all the scriptures, old and new, pointing to the work of Christ, his person, his work, and that we would see and worship this morning and rejoice. Rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to us, O Israel. I pray that we would see that this morning. We pray by your spirit that you would do these things. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So you can see we have a little hand out there for any notes you want to take this morning. Our outline is going to be pretty simple this morning. First, we're going to look at the refusal of these religious leaders to come to Christ. And then we're going to look about Moses speaking, Moses writing about Christ specifically in the Old Testament. So as we see this morning, there's this refusal to come. There's these claims that Jesus has made. He has claimed to be the Son of God. He's claimed to be eternal, equal with the Father. And these religious leaders want to kill him. They want to crucify him. They want to get him out of their lives. And this is where I said the whole conversation sort of turns, where Jesus stops making claims about himself. He stops, he stops bringing witnesses to the table, and he really sort of turns the whole conversation on them. And he says, you refuse to come to me. You refuse to come to me. We see here the spiritual blindness of these religious leaders. As Daryl pointed out, the, the Lord of glory is standing in front of them, and they're refusing to come. They're blind. As we remember in John chapter 1, it says that John the Baptist came to bear witness about the light. <laughs> and we talked about how it's sort of odd that someone needs to bear witness about the light. If there's darkness all around and there's a light on, nobody needs to bear witness to the light. But yet we see the blindness of these people that they cannot see the light of the world standing in front of them. And so Jesus begins pointing out their unbelief, their pride, and their blindness. And he does this in three ways. And you can write these down if you want. The first one is he points out their lack of love, the lack of love they have for God, the rejection of the name of God, and their despising of the glory of God. So these people lack the love of God, Jesus points this out. They reject the name of God, and they despise the glory of God. So we see there in verse 42 that they lack the love of God. That these religious leaders would have said, we love God. 
we love God, we love Yahweh, we love this God of the Old Testament, and Jesus is saying, you don't. Which is fascinating to think about, that Jesus is saying, you don't love God. You might say that you do, but you don't. And we could point, we could add to Jesus' words here saying, you don't because you hate me. You want to kill me. You don't love God because of your hatred of me. You go to places like 1 John where the same writer of this gospel points out that if someone does not love their brother, if someone hates their brother, the love of God is not in them. And so Jesus is pointing out a similar thing here, that they lack the love of God. Secondly, they reject the name of God. That Jesus here is saying, I've come in the Father's name. And this, this phrase can be misused in a lot of our circles. You know, doing this in Jesus' name, doing this in the Father's name is like this trump card. But what Jesus means here is, I come in my Father's name with his power, his authority. I'm doing his will. It's not just some magic phrase. It's coming in the power and authority of the Father. And he says, yet you refuse to receive me. You refuse to receive me. I've come in the Father's name, and you've rejected the name of God, essentially. And he points out how if somebody comes in their name, you know, in the name of Kendall, in the name of Andrew, you'd receive them. They, they, they care about coming in the name of people, of men, but not in the name of God. So they've rejected the name of God. So they lack this love of God. They reject the name of God. And finally, and maybe even most prominently, they despise the glory of God. They despise the glory of God. And there's, there's an interesting verse there, verse 41. Jesus says, I do not receive glory from people. And you might have paused when we were reading that and said, what? <laughs> Jesus is God. Shouldn't he receive glory from people? Jesus is not saying he doesn't receive glory from people, that he's not worthy of receiving glory from people, but he's saying, I'm not dependent on the glory of man. You people, you are dependent on the glory of men, this earthly glory that comes from being worshipped by men. Jesus rejects that. He says, I'm not dependent on that. I'm dependent on the glory of God. And then he says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? that they are more willing to receive glory from men, from one another, and they are not willing to receive the glory or seek after the glory that comes from the only God. So there's three big things that Jesus is pointing out. Their lack of love of God, their rejection of the name of God, and their despising the glory of God. And we can point to the ultimate reason why this is so, right? They're blind. <laughs> They're dead in their sins and trespasses. They're spiritually dead. They're totally depraved. But we can see in this passage how their unbelief plays itself out. They don't want to admit their weakness. They don't want to admit their need of a Savior. As we read this morning in John chapter 9, Jesus came so that those that are blind may see, and those that see may become blind. It's kind of a proverbial you know, wording there. What is Jesus talking about? I think sort of a parallel phrasing is in Luke chapter 5 where he says, it's not those that are well that need a doctor. It's those that are sick that need a doctor. And Jesus isn't saying there's some people in the universe, there's some people in the world that are really well, they don't have any sin, and they don't need me. And I didn't come for them, I came for the people that are really messed up. He's saying, 
the people that are sick are those that recognize their need. And these Pharisees are not recognizing their need. They're not willing to admit that they need a savior. They're self-righteous, they're proud, they're blind, and ultimately, they're centered on man. They have a man-centered theology. They're focused on the glory of men and not the glory of God. So just to summarize what Jesus is saying here and their refusal to come to Christ, he's saying, you're guilty, you refuse to come, you do not have the love of God, you accept other people, but you don't accept me, and you ultimately want the glory of men and not the glory of God. So these are pretty condemning words of our Lord. And so we see here the just the absolute and utter blindness of these men. The Lord of glory is standing before them, and they would rather have the glory of men. So secondly, we look, we've seen the refusal of them to come to Christ, and now we see this final thrust of Jesus' words in verses 45 through 47. He's saying, you're so guilty, you're so condemned, that I don't even have to I don't even have to condemn you. I don't even have to accuse you. Moses is going to do that. <laughs> Moses is going to do that. And so what does Jesus mean here? Well, we have to sort of understand the people of this day, they had two great heroes of the faith, Abraham and Moses. These are the two people, the two ways on which they rested their hope of eternal life. It was on Abraham and it was Moses. It was on their lineage, what family they came from, and it was on their legalism or the law that they followed. They set their hope on those two things, Abraham, Moses, lineage and their legalism, the family they came from, and the law that they followed. And Jesus confronts both of them, <laughs> not only here, but throughout John's gospel. If you remember in John chapter 8, Jesus is speaking to these Pharisees. He said, I've come to do my Father's will. And he says, you're doing your Father's will. And they say to him, well, Abraham is our father, right? They're resting on Abraham. They're resting on the fact that they are Jews. They are from the line of promise. And so we're safe. We're good. Everything's fine. They're resting on the family that they came from. And Jesus says these amazing words to them. He says, if you were Abraham's children you would be doing the works of Abraham. What's he saying there? If we can kind of interpret Jesus' words there, he's saying, if you were children of Abraham's faith, not his family, but his faith, you would believe in me. But he says, you are of your father, the devil. So Jesus there is saying, it's not about family, it's not about lineage, it's not about being of Abraham physically, but being of Abraham's faith. So he confronts them in John chapter 8. And we see something very similar here in verse 45 and 46. Jesus is saying, you've put your hope on Moses, just like they had put their hope on Abraham, that they're from Abraham. In a similar way, they're saying, we are disciples of Moses. We follow his law. This is their legalism speaking here. We follow his law. We're under his commandments. We read the scriptures. We memorize them. And so we're better. We're better because of that. They're relying on this law of Moses. 
So this is their hero. This is the one they've set their hope on. And Jesus totally flips the script on them. <laughs> he totally flips it upside down. And he says, if you believed Moses, you would believe me. If you believed Moses, you would believe me. And this really gets to the heart of what Jesus' words here in the second half of our text are getting at. That these religious leaders had missed the whole point of Moses, of the Old Testament. They'd missed the point. As we said last week, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. They missed the point. And Jesus here says, Moses wrote of me. <laughs> that is amazing. That is amazing to think about. That Jesus is telling these disciples of Moses that they actually don't believe anything Moses wrote about. <laughs> these people that they'd set their hope on Moses, he's saying, you actually don't believe Moses at all. You think you do, but you don't. You've missed the whole point. And to just sort of put some technical language to it, it can sound kind of wordy, and I'm not trying to do that, but I think it's important. Another way to say this is what Jesus is telling these Pharisees, these religious leaders, these leaders of the day, he's telling them, you have bad hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is a fancy word for principles of interpretation. The way that you look at the scriptures, the way that you interpret them, some basic hermeneutics are context, right? You look at a passage and you, you have to look at its context to help you understand that's a principle of interpretation. Another principle of interpretation is we use the clear passages in the Bible to help us interpret the non-clear passages, right? We don't use an obscure, non-clear passage to determine everything we believe. We use the clear passages. That's principles of interpretation. That's hermeneutics. Jesus here is saying... You have bad hermeneutics. You have bad principles of interpretation. And you've missed the whole point and scope of the scriptures. That the scope of the scriptures, the point of the scriptures of Moses, is not about Israel. It's not about good ethics. It's not about the law. It's not even about this earthly promised land that they were dwelling in. But it's about Christ. It's about Him. It's about His person and his work. That all of the scriptures are about Christ. And you might say, okay, Kendall, where are you getting this from? What are you even, what are you even talking about? Because it can be easy for us to read these words and sort of skip past them, right? Moses wrote about me. Okay, John chapter 6, feeding of the 5,000. We just kind of skip over them. But what Jesus is claiming here about himself is that Moses wrote about him. And you might say, well, Jesus' name is not in the Old Testament. I can't find Jesus Christ anywhere in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. I can't find it in the prophets. I can't find it in the Psalms. What does Jesus mean that Moses wrote about him? Either Jesus is a liar or these religious leaders had missed the whole point. And we know that it's the latter, if not the former, that Jesus here is saying all of the scriptures are about him, and specifically 
the writings of Moses. And the writings of Moses are the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so we should ask ourselves, where is Christ in the first five books of the Bible? When Jesus says these words, Moses wrote about me, can we think of anywhere or point to any places that Christ and his person and work are referred to? If we go to the book of Genesis, and we can see that Christ is the second better Adam. He's the one that fulfills the covenant of works, that enters God's Sabbath rest, crushes the head of the serpent, and fulfills this great covenant of promise. Christ is the offspring of Abraham, talked about in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17. He's the one that's going to come and bless the nations, this offspring of Abraham. If we go a little bit further in the book of Genesis, we see that Christ is the better Joseph, this beloved son of the father that's hated by his brothers, beaten, left for dead but rises to power at the right hand of the ruler of the world, exalted, and gives himself as bread for the perseverance of the world. In the book of Exodus, we see that Christ is the better Moses, who was also saved from or escapes death as an infant. He performs many signs and wonders that shows that God is with him. He saves his people from slavery and bondage. Christ is the true spotless lamb, the Passover lamb that is slain so death might pass over his people. He's the prophet that's greater than Moses that Moses talks about. In the book of Leviticus, we see that Christ is the great high priest. He's the one that ever lives to make intercession for his people, the true tabernacle and temple where God dwells with his people the perfect sacrifice where sin is paid for completely. In the book of Numbers, we see that Christ is the true and better Israel who resists temptation in the wilderness, doesn't succumb to temptation, but resists it. He's the bronze serpent that's set on a wooden pole that became sin so that anyone that looks on him and believes might be saved. And in the book of Deuteronomy, we see that Christ is the one who fulfills the law perfectly and not only brings covenant blessings to his people, but takes upon himself the covenant curses and leads his people to not an earthly promised land, but a heavenly one. And that's just the first five books of the Bible, <laughs> right? That's just the first five books of the Bible. And maybe there's some things I've said there that you haven't heard. Maybe some things you have questions about. That's okay. But what we're trying to say is that Christ is in the Old Testament. That these stories that we read of about Moses and Abraham are not just stories for Sunday school, stories to memorize, stories about how to live a better life, how to live like Abraham, how to live like Moses. They're pointing us to the person and work of Christ all the promises, all the types, all the shadows point to Jesus, who he is and what he would come to do. And these religious leaders had missed it. They had studied the scriptures their whole life and they missed the whole point. They're blind, they're proud, and they don't have the word of God abiding in them. 
and the chapter just sort of ends <laughs> with a question. And it goes right to John chapter 6. And so we'll look there next week. But to try to put a point on these passages, on these verses, a couple things to point out, ways to sort of walk away from here, things to contemplate. The first thing is, how often do we settle for the praise and glory of men rather than the glory of God? How often do we settle for the praise and glory of men rather than the glory of God? That these religious leaders are seeking their own fame, their own fortune, their own influence. They wanted everyone to see their outward holiness. You read a lot of the other gospel accounts. What do the Pharisees do? They go to the temple. They pray these loud, big prayers. They want everyone to see how holy they are. They give these absorbent amounts of money. They want everyone to see how generous they are. They tithe everything from their spice rack just so everyone can see how pious they are. And yet Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. It's all show. It's all hypocrisy. They want everyone to see how good they are on the outside, but inside they're full of dead men's bones. And tragically, and if we're honest with ourselves, how often do we desire the praise of people rather than the praise of God? <laughs> right? We are people pleasers at heart. We care more about pleasing men, about pleasing other people than about pleasing God. And I'm reminded of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. What's the first question in the Catechism? What is man's chief end? What's the purpose of man? What's your point in life? The answer is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. That God is the one that's worthy of glory. Why should we glorify God? Because He made me and takes care of me, is the question for our children that we teach them to memorize. How often do we forget such a simple answer? Because he made me and he takes care of me. He not only created us, but he saves us. He adopted us. Solo Deo Gloria. To the glory of God alone, that should be the, the cry of our lives. We should seek the glory of God alone in all things, not the glory of man, like these religious leaders. So we should seek the glory of God alone. And then secondly, these words of our Lord should have a profound effect on how we read, study, and understand all of the scriptures. These words of our Lord should have a profound effect on how we read, understand, and interpret all of the scriptures. That all of the scriptures point to Christ. And these religious leaders had missed the point. These religious leaders saw the scriptures as about Israel, about ethics, about the law. And it's easy for us to point to them, right? To point to the legalists that say, this is the point of the Bible. It's to be a better person. It's to live a better life. But we're guilty of the same things. <laughs> we make the scriptures about good moral stories on how to live our lives. Maybe we make it a code book for how to predict the end of the world. But maybe most tragically, we make the scriptures a book about us. We make the scriptures a book about us. I heard one time, not far from where we're standing here, a pastor say, you're not a mature Christian 
until you start reading the scriptures as autobiography. As autobiography. You need to read the scriptures in such a way that you are the point. That you are the point of the scriptures. That the scriptures are really about you. That's what that person is saying. I don't use this word a lot. That is demonic. <laughs> that is demonic. That is the opposite of what Jesus is saying here. And there's lots of there's lots of different thoughts about how we can understand the Old Testament. And I'm not saying all of them are equally as heinous. But there's, there's a prevalency out there to see the scriptures as being about us. Right? Maybe you've heard people use the story of David and Goliath. That's a common one, right? You know, your David and Goliath are these big problems in your life, and you need to have these five smooth stones to sling and, you know, defeat the, David, the Goliath in your life, or whatever, that's a common one. But when we think about what that's doing, it's making the scriptures about one person, and that person is us. And I think if we can restate what Jesus is saying here, he would say, the scriptures are about one person, but it's not you. The scriptures are about one person, but it's not you. That the scriptures are about Christ. This is what we call Christocentric, or the Christ-centeredness of all the scriptures. That we're to see the redemptive work of Christ in all 66 books of the Bible. And this is so tempting for me because I like to make the connections. I like to see Christ in Joseph, in Moses, in Abraham. And it's easy for it to become sort of an intellectual exercise where we find all these types and shadows and we know them in our minds. And so we think that's what makes us right before God. But they're meant to point our eyes to Christ. We're meant to see this plan of redemption that God has established from Genesis 1 to Revelation and say, this is the work of God. That no person could have planned these intricate connections that are written thousands of years apart. This is the work of God inspiring the scriptures. And as we read this morning in 2 Corinthians, it's fascinating what, what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. He's saying the way that we're transformed as believers, the way that we're changed, the way that we hate our sin, the way that we cling to Christ, the way that we are conform to his image, how, are, how, how do we change as Christians? Have you ever thought about it? How do we change as Christians? How is my life made better? How am I conformed to the image of Christ? Is it through people giving me the law? Is it through people giving me moral commands? Paul says, we are all with unveiled face being transformed. How? By beholding the glory of the Lord. By beholding the glory of the Lord. That that is how we are changed. That's how we come to hate our sin. That's how we come to be made pure in our lives and our actions. It's not through simply moral commands. But it's through beholding Christ crucified in all the scriptures. Yes, that means there's commands that come with that. Don't hate people. <laughs> Don't murder. Don't steal. Those are all good things. But they can't be separated from what Christ has done for us in the gospel. So as we, as we walk away from this passage, let's let it influence all that we do as Christians. Not only how we read the scriptures, but how we live our lives. As we see Christ in the scriptures, may it change us, may it make us new, reform our hearts and minds, 
and conform us to his image so that we can walk in his ways and worship him. Let's pray this morning. Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for your word, your special revelation to us, both in old and new. As Augustine said, Christ is in the old concealed and he's in the new revealed. That we see him in shadowy types and promises in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament we see him fully revealed as the one that would crush the serpent's head, the better Moses, the better Abraham, the better Adam, who for us and for our salvation has accomplished redemption, has gone before the Father, ever lives to make intercession for his people, and so we can see your redemptive work in all the scriptures. And I pray this morning that we would not just see it as an intellectual exercise, but that we would see it as something that transforms our lives, transforms our hearts and our minds, gives us a passion and a zeal for your word, to witness to who you are, and that we would come before you this morning with thankfulness that you have opened our eyes, that it's you that unveils our faces to the glory of God. It's only because of you that we are not blind. Would you humble us this morning and that we would worship you in spirit and in truth, not only today, but all the days of our lives. We pray these words in your son's name. Amen. Amen. We come now to the time of our service where we celebrate the Lord's Supper. As we sang this morning, I don't know if you caught it, in um, Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence, it says, Christ gives himself to his people. <laughs> that though That is who we feed on. He gives his own self to us. That this is a meal for God's people whereby we are feeding and receiving Christ crucified. Not physically, right? This, this bread and wine doesn't magically change into something else. But we spiritually feed on Christ. How? Because we're reminded of the gospel when we eat and when we drink. Some theologians call this the physical word. It's right. I've just read to you the scriptures. I've tried to explain them hopefully somewhat coherently. <laughs> but in the supper, we see the word. We see these physical promises of Christ that his body was broken, his blood was shed so that ours might be spared. And it's meant to nourish our souls. It's meant to confirm our faith because our eyes are not led to a single person. They're not led to our works, not to our obedience. They're led to the works and obedience of Christ. And so we can say confidently that these are means of grace for God's people. And so we're reminded of the words of institution, the words of our Lord on the night when he was betrayed. He took the bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me that we're to remember Christ's sacrifice, that God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, that we might be saved. 
And so we come this morning humbled <laughs> that the God of the universe would send his own son to take on flesh, to take on nerve endings, to suffer pain so that we might be spared and saved. We're the ones that sinned. We're the ones that went against God and his ways and God made a way through his son. And so this morning we come confessing our sin. We come examining ourselves. We come thinking about the ways this last week that we've gone against God, gone against his ways, that we've sinned against him, that we've been proud, that we've been self-righteous. And so we confess those, knowing that God is able to forgive us when we confess our sins. But each week we come rejoicing, that it's not a somber thing that we do, it's a rejoicing. It's a coming before the Lord, feeding on Christ, saying, you've made a way, my only hope in life and death is that I am not my own, but belong to Christ. And so we can come confidently this morning to the throne of grace, knowing that for those that recognize their sin and their need for a Savior, Christ is ably abundant to pardon. So let's come before the Lord this morning, form a line, take the elements back to your seat, and we'll partake together. a lot, but Christ is present with us. He promises to be present with his people when they gather together and he promises to be present with his people in the suffering. But it's not physically. It's spiritually. He is with us, spiritually present, watching over us, guiding us, encouraging our souls. He knows our hearts. He knows our weaknesses. He's not surprised by them. And he's given this meal to us to strengthen us and encourage us. So let's see it as that this morning. So each week we take the bread. We remember all that Christ has done for us. We believe that he has done it for us. 
And we remember that Christ's body was broken for the forgiveness of all of our sins. And in the same way, we take the cup, this cup of the new covenant, with better promises than the old, that Christ has done everything that's necessary to salvation. He's accomplished it, and it's by faith alone that we're united to him. So we take, we drink, we remember, and we believe that Christ's blood was spilled for the forgiveness of all of our sins. stand now and we'll respond to God and praise Him for this great act of salvation and as we sing praise Him for His great faithfulness. If you want to turn to Him, 61 will sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness.
great is thy faithfulness. We remember that this morning as we come before the Lord to worship him by giving a portion of what he's given us back to him. We're reminded of his faithfulness, his provision for our lives, that all we have needed, he's provided. Not only common grace and the, and the amazing things that we have, but in his special grace in giving us his son, we have great many things to be thankful for this morning. So as we give a portion of that back, either now or we remember our giving that we've given earlier, we praise the Lord for all he's done and, and pray that he would use these humble offerings to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. Let's pray for our offerings this morning. Lord, we thank you for all that you've provided for us, that you are unchanging in your steadfast love and kindness and patience with us, Lord. We pray that you would use these offerings for the growth of your kingdom, that we would support the proclamation of the gospel here in Decatur and to the ends of the earth, and that your name would be glorified and the, the whole earth would be full of your glory. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Sing with me hymn number 13, the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly from the book of Numbers. Benediction means blessing. This is the Lord blessing you as you go. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The grace and peace of our Lord as you go this morning. <laughs>